Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 97.1 FM Talk Podcast. You know what's funny about that? That soundbite that airs in, in that particular open with um, with Biden is he sound. Think about it. He sounds like super alert there because yeah. it was from a couple of years ago. It, there I'm is. Not, a I'm not even making that up. I mean, I saw him, Fred. You saw this again today. He was struggling to get right. the words out. Yeah. Uh-huh. Quite a bit. Good afternoon, everyone, on a uh, bit of a chillier day than yesterday. I don't know if you've noticed <laughs> that. And the wind was just brutal earlier, too, oh, so horrible. it makes it feel even colder than it was. But, you know, having said that, I look at the um, you know, the extended forecast on the weather app, and we know how accurate that is as compared to everything else that weather folks do. And it looks like we're in this pattern where it's going to be in the 60s for the next couple of weeks. Okay. My, my wife is out playing disc golf today. I'm saying, boy, she's going to be doing very good distances when she throws it. Boy, Your no kidding. Does, we need her on the round table or <laughs> She's something. She's more interesting she does. than me. I'll tell you that. Man, I'll tell you what. Disc golf, that's not easy, I don't think. But, Do, well, has she done that before? Yeah. Have you ever done it? Uh, not with her, no. I have friends there in Columbia that are really into that, like in tournaments and stuff like that. They uh, have beautiful courses around here. I know. Yeah, they do. You know, are we essentially talking a, about Frisbee golf? Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. But it's, a, it's JB is right it just, why, why do we say disc? Is it smaller? Or yeah, is because it... it's not really Frisbees. They're, you'd be surprised. This thing. They, They're it's not so, you, you have to, uh-huh. like, they have different um, discs for your distances, right? Oh. So if you're putting, if you're throwing, Whoa. like if you're driving, you're throwing. I've only known this stuff just because my friends who play, it seems very complicated to me. But no, it's not just a Frisbee. Okay. So, Okay, that's there's, interesting. There's different protocol. But we get you know kind of distracted here at the start of the show. <laughs> I don't know. You know what? We could say maybe Mitch McConnell's going to start doing a little disc golf more often, but he says he's not leaving the Senate. He announced this today. So I stand before you today, Mr. President, and my colleagues to say this will be my last term as Republican leader of the Senate. I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. However, I'll complete my job. My colleagues have given me until we select a new leader in November and they take the helm next January. So I'm never right about these things, but I'm taking a stab at something, a little political prediction here. All right. All right. I'm going to put the, uh, what was the bit that Carson used to do, like Karnak? Karnak. Karnak. Amazing Karnak. The card is going to be up on my head. I think that the next 
minority and majority leader, could be majority leader, right, is going to be named John. I don't know why I feel this way, but there's just something about it that hey, Mark. I think the name is going to be John. Who, who are the three leading candidates? Oh, it would be John Thune of South Dakota, John Cornyn of Texas, and John Barrasso of Wyoming. <laughs> so look, look, Trump's in a great position here, right? He can say, I endorse John like he did with yeah. the two heirs. Oh my gosh, you're right. It's going to be perfect. But, you know, here's what I would say about Senator McConnell. Uh, I, I think he probably should have left leadership a while ago. On the other hand, I think people need to be careful what they wish for because yeah. you think everything's going to change here. This is a really tricky position to manage legislation in the Senate that um, either has to go back to the House or has to go to the president's desk. And am I going to argue that he is currently the best conservative leader? No, I don't think so. And I think it's probably not even only time for him to give up leadership, but he's 82 years old, as he said. He's not going anywhere. Well, maybe he should, like the president. Maybe the president should move on as well. So I'm all for better leadership, but I would caution people to assume automatically that somehow that's going to change the dynamic in the Senate when it comes to different priorities. I just don't think it will. And all those guys, I mean, look, I see uh, the same folks out there that don't want McConnell saying, oh, my God, anybody but Thune. Thune's a pretty establishment guy or anyone but Cornyn. So that leaves John Barrasso if he's the guy. And I don't know where, you know, the support will come from. So we'll get to that. You know, Matt Gates is out there saying, look, look who we've brought down. He's taking credit for some of this stuff. You got McConnell is out. Rana is out. Kevin McCarthy's out. So that that's quite the trifecta here in the last six months where, you know, some some folks, I guess, on the other side of what might be considered the establishment have uh, taken some folks out. So we'll get to that here and cover it here this afternoon as well. We got a, a lineup that is amazing today, I think. Um, Avi Malamad is going to be here. He is a former Israeli intelligence officer. He's written a book called Inside the Middle East, Entering a New Era, and also has a docu-series that is uh, focusing on Jerusalem's flashpoints and his work during uh, the Infantana. So he's coming in the studio. We have an author that contributes to the City Journal that wrote about some of this stuff um, involving Mayor Adams' death Debit cards, etc. Our friend Alex Rich is here from Y98 in the next hour. We got Dr. Roy Spencer in the five o'clock hour. We're going to talk about AI and some of this crazy AI stuff with our friend Vance Crow. Oh, good. Who's dialed into that? But let me start with something that um, I had a listener that dialed me into this earlier today. And let me check the email just to see quickly. <laughs> I sent a perfunctory email to the Kirkwood school superintendent to see if I would get a response. No, there has been, nope. been no response. And I, I should, you know, I almost, when I wrote the email, I almost put, P.S., I know you're not going to respond to this, <laughs> but I have to try anyway. So this is from, you're going to hear audio here, and I think one parent identifies herself uh, on the audio. I, I'm not opposed to identifying the parents. I just don't know all their names. And I have an ask for those of you who are the listeners here this afternoon, because what you're going to hear is a series of parents. I think there were five or six that went up before the school board on Tuesday night of this week at the beginning of the meeting during the public comment portion. Now, I didn't watch the whole meeting, but what I think happened is they all go up there. They get their three minutes to express concerns about a student who's in fifth grade at Robinson Elementary in the school district in Kirkwood. And they all kind of share the same story, and I'm going to share that with you here in just a second. But then after they're done, the meeting just moves on, right? They, they never, the board never addresses this. They never respond to it. I am because, not surprised. Right, because it's like, you know, we got to do this. We got to read the minutes. We have to have a motion, blah, blah, blah. But I got to tell you, this seems pretty concerning for the Kirkwood School District and. I'm just going to take a stab at something, ladies and gentlemen, making a prediction. I think I'm right on my John prediction for the next Senate leader for the Republicans. 
I'm going to guess that who we're talking about here, this student is not a cis white male. I'm just guessing. So listen to the story. Um, I have a well-written speech right here, but I'm actually just going to speak from the cuff. Um, I'm here to discuss a violent sexual predator that is in my daughter's class that has continued to fall on deaf ears. Uh, Everybody that we have spoken to has placed the blame upon you guys. Everything that they have said is based upon the policies that are written by you guys and revised by you guys. Um, When he says you guys, he's talking about the the um, board board right now. He's misgendering half of the board. I just want to point that out. These policies, if if that is a correct statement, is based upon... Little Sally may be kissing, uh, little, excuse me, little Timmy kissing little Sally on the cheek and her not liking it. This is well past this. This is, this is explicit content. This is, I'm going to murder your family. This is, if you, if you narc on me, I'm going to come to school and attack. And then they do. And we have continued to bring this up to every level of administration that will get back to us. There's some here that will not. And... The, uh, it has fallen on deaf ears. You know, what's amazing here is, let me tell you something. I have a daughter about to turn nine. Everybody knows that, right? He's talking about his daughter who is 10 years old. I'd have been throwing chairs. Every mm. one of these parents goes up there. They're very civil. They're very respectful. They tell their stories, but their stories are very similar. Now, this is uh, the same guy, and he offers a brilliant analogy here, I think. One of the big things I want to point out is that I came in and literally had a silent protest and sat down with someone and brought in a book and said, I want you to know what it's like to feel uncomfortable having somebody around you. Now, I've never done anything wrong to anybody that is in this room, and I was escorted out by four police officers. My daughter, on the other hand, who has been victimized, who has been attacked by this kid, is now has a student in her class, and when she was unhappy about it, she was told to wipe the look off of her face and for her to uh, be nice to this kid. Are you freaking kidding me? Now, ladies and gentlemen, I am always open to another side of the story. I really am. But that is horrifying. So that raises, remember my prediction, ladies and gentlemen, that raises some points about why is this student being protected by teachers, by other staff members. Don't know. Here's another parent. I'm here to speak about concerns regarding the safety of our students within the walls of Robinson Elementary. There have been some flags raised regarding communication and adherence to district policies. A student recently sent several sexually explicit and vulgar text messages and videos, including death threats to a group of 10-year-old girls. The content in some of the videos would make a grown man blush. The message contents display blatant sexual harassment as defined by district policy AC, and yet it's taken a month to investigate with zero answers. So that's another thing that's kind of stunning here is you have, this has not been going on, a lot of the things that they're talking about actually happened last Friday. I think this next parent talks about um, an incident from Friday. I believe this is a different woman that you just heard from. Uh, my name is Brittany Kilgore. I'm here to represent on behalf of my child, a fifth grade student at Robinson who was assaulted Friday, January 26, as a result of a sexual harassment investigation. I'm also here on behalf of all children at Robinson as I feel my child and others are in immediate danger that has not been properly addressed. My daughter and several others were victims of assault, sexual harassment, and death threats that have caused significant emotional damage. My primary concern has been and will remain the physical and emotional safety of these victims and all children. Violence and threats of taking someone's life should never be taken 
should never not be taken seriously or come to expect as a normal behavior in an educational setting despite tragedies many schools face every year. Let's remember this moment here from this afternoon because I'm telling you, if the rest of the media gets involved in this, and I alerted our friends down the hall at KMOX, and I think they're looking into it, but let's say that our local newspaper gets into this and we get coverage because the impact, despite the... uh, the presence that we like to feel that we have and the influence here, Sue. I don't know if my show is going to spark a lot of change hey. in the woke Kirkwood School District, but you can't tell me that there's not something up with this of that is out is. of the ordinary. Of and course. I would predict that the wokeness of the Kirkwood School District that they're so well known for somehow has a teensy tiny role in this. We're going to find out. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. A little bit of uh, sad breaking news, and I was certainly a fan, and if you're a fan of the show Curb Your Enthusiasm, Richard Lewis has passed away. Oh, no. At the age of 76, he had a heart attack, I guess, on Tuesday night. It's just being reported this morning. Um, I'm and he sorry had revealed, like, that. a year ago, it was just a year ago, he had revealed he had Parkinson's look, and uh, Richard did not look good in the last, um, you know, Curb from a few years ago, and I, I'm sitting here trying to remember if he was in this season, and I think he was. Oh, but he, he has he has not looked like the picture of health. So that just kind of came down here in the last few minutes. The other thing that I don't know whether to celebrate or be sad about this, you can be the determining factor on this. Got a message from our friend Jane Duker. She nabbed tickets to Alabama, Tennessee, and her daughter goes to Alabama. So she's skipping the fish fry on Friday oh. and going to Alabama. So, again, oh. should I be happy about that or say, no, we will miss her. We will miss her. And, uh, you know, a lot of people want to come by and, and see Jane when she's uh, at the Fish Fries, but we'll make up for it. We'll be at um, – Good where for is her, it? Prince, uh, I don't want to say where we're at next Incarnate week. If I, Word Incarnate is this Word week. this Friday, but next week, I don't want to misquote it. Oh, it's, we'll find out. It's we'll in ball out. one. All right, we got a lot of stuff going on here this afternoon outside of uh, Mitch McConnell 
announcing that he's going to step down from Senate leadership, um, but he's going to stay in the Senate. We'll get into that a little bit more. We have Sue's News and also our friend Alex Rich. i got a bunch of good stuff, uh, some restaurant-related topics for the next hour. Oh, I'm loving that. Yeah, I think you're going to look forward to that. All right, right now, though, we have uh, Avi Malamed in the studio. He's a former Israeli intelligence officer. He's written a book called Inside the Middle East, Entering a New Era, also involved in a docuseries called The Seam Line, which focuses on Jerusalem's flashpoints. And he was in town to do a bunch of uh, events, including earlier today at the J, to talk about the uh, the war between Israel and Hamas. And Avi, thanks for coming in to the studio. We really appreciate it. How are you this afternoon? I'm good, Mark. Thank you for having me. Are you are you still doing any speeches here today or tomorrow? Or are you kind of wrap that up? Is this uh, is just your final appearance on the Mark Reardon show? Well, actually, I have two sessions this morning, and yeah. this evening I have a big event at the uh, JCC. Some 300 people are attending awesome. my presentation. Wow. Well, maybe just start here a little bit about yourself. I mentioned former Israeli intelligence officer. A little biographical information. Well, I'm former Israeli intelligence official. I'm senior Israeli official on Arab affairs. I'm fluent in Hebrew, Arabic, and English. I'm also an educator. I served uh, for a while as head of intelligence and Middle East program at the Eisenhower Institute at Washington, D.C. I'm the founder and uh, chief educational officer of uh, Inside the Middle East, a 501c3 based in the United States, providing a political nonpartisan education about the Middle East. Let's go back to just what, what happened, and we'll get to the current state of, of what's happening, but let's go to October 7th and, and just your reaction to that. You know, there's still, I think in, in the end here, there's going to be some questions when, when all of this settles down a little bit about what, you know, what really happened, how it happened. But what's your opinion of all that and the way that this started with Hamas parachuting in, you know, slaughtering, raping the, the horrors that we heard about that, you know, some people on college campuses want to ignore, and we'll get into that in a minute. But your thoughts on the start of all this and the horror, Avi? Yes, well, that's terrifying. I mean, you know, I'm telling people, you know, the day before, October 6th, thousands of Palestinians also entered Israel from Gaza, but they entered legally. They entered through the crossing to come to work and provide their families because they had work um, permits provided to them by the Israeli government. The next day, October 7th, as you said, Hamas militants, Islamic Jihad militants, trade Israel and did what they did. Do Do you think, what's the solution to end this? Let's jump to that, it, it, because I don't know what the end game is right now, and I want to get your opinion about the current state of what's happening. But what is the end game, in your opinion? Well, I think it's interesting, Mark, because, you know, in the Western perspective, the peace, the concept of peace is very common. That's not necessarily the case in the context of the Middle East. In the Middle East, people don't necessarily talk about peace. They're rather talking about long-term arrangements that has to be maintained from time to time. So I think that when we are talking about Israelis and Palestinians, I would say that talking about what is known as the two-state solution is not viable. It's not relevant at this moment and foreseeable future. It's not because I don't want it. Uh, It's simply because the two people are not in a place where they can really come to the table. It certainly seems that way, right? Okay, so then where does that leave us? It leaves us with um, other options. And I'm always talking about what I'm calling a regional envelope, bringing into the picture major regional players like Egypt and Saudi Arabia and others who will provide a sort of like scaffolding to build a process of uh, building trust and arrangement between Israelis and Palestinians in a very gradual process. I would say, roughly speaking, that if we really want to move forward in a positive trajectory, there are a couple of elements to that. First, there must be that scaffolding that I was talking about. Second, there must be an inner re-evaluating of narratives and political discussions on both sides, Israelis and Palestinians. And third, I think that we have to think out of the box, offering the sides all kind of like more, I would say, uh, productive and imaginary uh, solutions, how to move ahead 
in building these scaffoldings, moving from one stage to another. But the scaffoldings can include, just to be clear here, some of this is very complicated for, for people certainly here uh, to understand. But Hamas cannot exist, can it? Or is that are they still part of the solution? Let me be clear about something. Hamas is not going to disappear, exactly like Nazism did not disappear. Right, right. But the, uh, the whole idea is, in the end of the day, that Hamas is part of the Palestinian inner political system. And, th- and that's the reason why I'm talking about the need of the Palestinians to go through a very profound inner political uh, narrative rediscussion, because it's obvious that as long as Hamas is able to continue and dictate its radical agenda, there will be no path no trajectory of hope. Neither but is there a willingness no on the part of the Palestinians to really go down a path like that? Because they seem to be, I mean, we use the word indoctrinated quite a bit here in this country now with what's happening on college campuses and, and even elementary schools and, you know, high schools. But in, in this situation, you, you you know, and we don't have the, the pure scope, Avi, because I've never been there and I've never had discussions with Palestinians in Gaza, but we've seen information in media accounts and audio and video of, young children being taught to hate Jews. This is part of their upbringing. Yes, this is one of the major challenges. It totally has to be changed. You must create an atmosphere that encourages people to be um, seeking for peace and not to hate one another. And then there is another thing that has to be very significant also in that context of the inner Palestinian discussion, the need of the Palestinians to depart from their victimhood narrative. As long as they don't do that, they won't be able to continue um, to the next phase which is required. And then I think there is something very significant in the context of the Western discussion about it. I think that people in the West, some circles in the West who continue to exempt Hamas from responsibility are doing a very bad service to both Israelis and Palestinians who are looking for trajectory of peace and hope. Because as long as Hamas will be able to continue its and dictate its mm-hmm. radical agenda, there will be no hope for two people. What do you think? Now, there's there's renewed talk about maybe a ceasefire. The president indicated some of that a couple of days, even though he's always kind of confusing. This is General Keith Kellogg, who's one of the experts, not only on this show, but on Fox. If there is a ceasefire, it's going to be a short-term ceasefire. Look, this is a fight of biblical proportions for them. They're mm-hmm. going to clear Rafa, they, the Israeli army. And they're doing a great job with it. They've, they've basically destroyed 18 of the 24 uh, by battalions of the Hamas, mm-hmm. they're going to finish that job. The short term, the ceasefire will be to try to get the hostages out. And I think that's what they'll do. But it's not going to be long term. They can't afford it based on this fight. Abi, any thoughts on that reaction? I think it's a quite accurate observation. I think that if there's going to be a ceasefire, it will be mostly to enable Israel to get back as much as possible the hostages that are being kept by Hamas. But I think that he's right. Israel is determined to move on with the mission. Avi Malamed is here, former Israeli intelligence officer who's in St. Louis for a couple of days. You know, you mentioned, uh, I'm curious about your opinion of the Palestinians and just uh, how they might view this situation either currently or into the future. So, for example, in this country, I'm sure you've picked up on some of this, we have a, a situation that's very interesting at our southern border in particular. And the overwhelming majority of the people in this country see an issue with that, but it gets kind of drowned out by minority views. Maybe even some of the, the feelings in this country about Israel are being drowned out by some of the minority views. So I asked the question from that perspective along these lines. Are there Palestinians who are frustrated as well with Hamas, with their government leadership, who who see a different path, or are there not? Because they're not really represented. And we hear about civilian deaths and casualties from folks in this country, but how do they feel? Are there, are there different feelings? I guess the question would be, is it nuanced with Palestinian people, in your opinion? It is nuanced. There are Palestinians, uh, and there are increasing voices of Palestinians that are unhappy with Hamas. There is something even more significant than that. We have to remember that 
Uh, it's not expressed enough in the Western media, but there is a lot of criticism in the Arab world on Hamas prior to October 7 and particularly following October 7. Yeah, we don't have that perspective, I don't think. I know. That's the reason yeah. I emphasize that. And the Arab criticism on Hamas basically centers around three major issues. They say to Hamas, your radical agenda broke havoc and destruction upon your own brothers and sisters Which in Gaza. Which is true, <laughs> right? You caused um, a, a non-bridgeable uh, um, rift within the Palestinian people themselves, hence damaging the Palestinian cause. And the one last thing, which is very significant in the Arab criticism on Hamas, including the Palestinian criticism on Hamas, is saying, you Hamas, you sacrificed your own brothers and sisters at the altar of the murderous Iranian regime. So then, how along those lines, how do you react to the the claims that we hear from elected officials, whether it's Rashida Tlaib in Congress or people on college campuses, about the horrors of what's happened with civilian deaths. And there's numbers that are tossed out there. I mean, candidly, I don't know what to believe, right? And you certainly had a situation in current conflicts and wars where, unfortunately, civilians became a, a part of the um, of the story in World War II and, and beyond, or before that as well. But your, your thoughts when you hear people specifically focusing on civilian casualties from Gaza? I would say two things. First, this is the most complex war possible, and Israel is fighting the most possible complex war possible. Remember, Israel is fighting a brutal enemy that is deliberately, knowingly using his own brothers and sisters. I'm talking about Hamas and Islamic Jihad as a human shield. They are deliberately operating from massively urban areas. We saw all the evidence. We saw the tunnels. We saw the headquarters and so on and so on, under hospitals and mosques and schools and other public facilities. So this is one thing to take into consideration. And Israel is doing an enormous effort, and it was validated by many uh, professional authorities in the world that Israel is doing really an enormous effort to try to minimize as much as possible collateral damage given to that a kind of a very complex situation. And the other thing that I would say to people who rush to jump and throw numbers as a fact, I would be much more cautious. We are throwing numbers or figures or statistics or any kind of information and to present it as a fact without really being checked. And I think this is somewhat of a major challenge because people have the tendency automatically to repeat things that sure. they have been yep, told. Absolutely. And they think mm-hmm. that this is the... No- I had discussions with, you know, media people that were throwing numbers, and I was saying very simply, how do you know? How do you know? Because I don't know how many, what's the real numbers of fatalities in Gaza Strip. I don't know to say what's the ratio of buildings that have been uh, damaged in Gaza Strip. I don't know to say that. I would be much more cautious, and particularly when we know that the information is coming from Hamas Authorities. Yeah, I know. There's a lot of trust of those numbers. Let me just take you back. You mentioned Egypt and the other, you know, countries in the Middle East that could have effect here. What what is Egypt's role in in particular? I mean, they didn't want the refugees, right? Well, Egypt uh, ruled Gaza Strip, as you may remember, from 48 to 67. They never annexed Gaza Strip. Is Egypt view Hamas as a national as a threat to Egypt's national security? And they have good reasons for that because Hamas was involved in terror plots against Egyptians inside Egypt. So you can understand from here that Egypt or the Saudis, which also view Hamas as a terror organization, the Jordanians, the Emirates, basically, they would shed no tear to see Hamas Hamas crushed down to the ground. They do know, however, that Hamas is going to stay around. So they have to navigate this whole complex system. Uh, Egypt clearly basically make it very clear. They don't want to take even one single Palestinian from Gaza Strip. They don't want to take responsibility for that. But the reality is, in the end of the day, they, they will have to take responsibility for that because, to a large extent, uh, Hamas, uh, Gaza is, in the end of the day, 
some part of Egypt in the end of the day, and they will have to take responsibility for that as well. Just a quick question. I'm running out of time. I just thought of this now, but who pays, uh, how are things funded in Gaza for the government? And the reason I ask the question is, who's going to pay to rebuild Gaza? How, how does that happen? Well, when Hamas ruled Gaza since 2007, Hamas basically made a lot of fortune in Gaza. You know, Hamas leaders are super billionaires. Uh, we are talking about taxes, we are talking about smuggling of commodities, we are talking about uh, merchants and so on and so on. Now, following what's going on in Gaza Strip, there is an expectation. I just uh, today saw uh, um, an information by one of, civil, one of the most senior officials in, in the PA who basically says, we expect people... Uh, we expect the world, meaning the Arab world, to come and to rebuild Gaza Strip. The Saudis and the Emirates, which are basically the address to this appeal, are basically saying, guys, we're not going to pour billions of dollars just for another couple of years to be all destroyed again by Hamas. If we're going well, to that's pour an money, excellent point, right? Yeah. Why, why would you want to do that? There's, you don't uh, want to do that. No, you don't. Avi, thank you so much for coming in, and I know you have a big speech tonight, so um, enjoy that. Have you been to St. Louis previously or not? Actually, I did. I've really? been here a couple of here. times. It's well, I was going to fake always... you out and tell you that it's usually always 80 degrees on one day and then 25 degrees the next day. <laughs> that's what happened to me last <laughs> night. I mean, that was... It was nuts, right? Well, it, it the weather does get a little crazy around here, but thank you so much for coming in. Thank really you appreciate it. We'll take me. a break here. We're Take coming care. back with a lot more. Don't forget, we got Sue's News in the next hour. Our friend Alex Rich from Why Not Yet. I got a couple of restaurant topics about the cost of doing business as restaurant tours and how that gets passed along to us. That's coming up a little later this afternoon. Hang in there. If we just sit back and just state we're going to uh, just allow people to be here forever and just continue to hint taxpayers with dollars, not trying things new and different, we're not going to solve this problem. Yeah, so new and different is handing out $10,000 prepaid debit cards to migrants in New York City. That's Eric Adams, the mayor of New York City. It's nuts. And Nicole Gelinas is with us. She uh, is a contributor to the City Journal, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, the author of After the Fall. Nicole, how can I get my hands on one of these debit cards? It sounds like something we could use here in St. Louis as well. How are you? Yeah, good afternoon, Mark. Thanks for having me on. I'm well. How are you? Uh, we're okay, but what what in the world? I think a lot of us here in this part of the country have been scratching our heads over this and how it happened. And, you know, you kind of highlighted that it may be even worse than we think, right? Right. Well, you know, the mayor is creating a new problem to solve an existing problem. So, you know, your your listeners are probably familiar by now that New York City has this unique right to shelter. Nobody made us do this. We took this upon ourselves to say, it's not an exaggeration, anybody in the world can come to New York and get unlimited shelter on demand, no questions asked. You know, you could be living in New York years and be down on your luck and need shelter, or you could have just arrived here yesterday and, and come and, and show up looking for shelter. And part of the right to shelter is three meals a day at the city government guarantees and they contract with these no-bid vendors, uh, you know, preferred vendors. Goodness knows why they pick one vendor over another because there's no competitive bid process. These bidders, are, these uh, vendors are supposed to pro- provide food. And some of the food is inedible, you know, it's, it's expired, it's rotten, what have you. And the migrants don't like some of the food. You know, it's not, it doesn't fit uh, halal or whatever vegan or whatever dietary restrictions. And so a lot of the food gets thrown away. So, you know, there's ways to solve that. I mean, schools feed people, hospitals feed people, prisons feed people. This is not that hard. But the city is solving this by instead of giving the migrants food directly, going to start giving migrants 
money to buy food. So goes out, does another no-bid contractor with this uh, debit card company, MochaFi, going to start giving the migrants debit cards so that they can buy their own food at local supermarkets, local drug stores, uh, local convenience stores, and and so forth. So, you know, the city has they, – they released as little information as possible as they could about this program until I got my hand on the actual contract. And the contract gives them massive scope, uh, as you said, up to $10,000 on a debit card. Why would you write into the contract that you'll allow up to $10,000 on the debit card if you didn't plan to allow people to put that much on the debit card? A possibility of giving these cards directly to minors, you know, their parents have to sign off on it if you give the cards to children. Uh, And the possibility that you can use these cards at ATMs, including international ATMs. There's a fee schedule. So you you can get cash out, too. You can get cash with them? the, you know, this is the city says one thing and writes down another. So the city will tell you verbally, oh, no, we're never going to do that. That's going to be turned off. We're not going to give people $10,000. We're going to give people $15 a day. Uh, they can only use it at supermarkets. They have to sign an affidavit that they can only use it at supermarkets and convenience stores. But the actual contract is very okay. different. You know, this is not a food stamp program. This is a, a debit card, basic income cash program. Okay, so, Nicole, then this kind of – I want to segue into what might be – and I I refer to this as journalistic malpractice because there was an interesting exchange that you had with a reporter from The New York Times who was kind of curious about this story, right? I want you to explain that. Right, and, and, you know, here I go, and this is just like normal doing your job. It's no great heroics. Like the the mayor started talking about this program – about a month ago, and he didn't want to. The Post had actually found out. The news reporter said, found out about this program, asked him about it. He said, don't worry about it. It's only a pilot program for 500 families staying at one hotel. We'll give them you know, $20 a day per person and see how it works and if it saves money. So I said, okay, I wonder what the size of the contract was. So I went on the city website where they don't give you the contract, but they tell you the amount. And the amount was $50 million. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. A pilot for 500 people only works out to about $6 million a year. So where do you get $50 million contract? So I use the Freedom of Information Act, ask the independent uh, the, the budget office for a copy of the full contract. And lo and behold, you know, the contract is very different from what the mayor's been saying. It's not going to be for 500 people. It's open-ended. There's a fee schedule for disbursements of $150 million and above. So it even goes above the $50 million that he that was the number registered in the contract. So I gave them, got in touch with them, uh, said to the department doing this and to the mayor's office, can you explain some of these discrepancies? You know, why do you have international ATM capability? How much is each family going to get? They never answered me, so I wrote my story. And so, you know, along comes the New York Times and says that it's incorrect. And why does the Times say it's incorrect? Because City Hall selectively talks to them after my story comes out and says the same thing they've been saying for a month. Don't worry about it. We're not going to use the full capabilities. It's only going to be 500 people. And so the New York Times uses this and says, oh, you know, this this person is wrong. This is just 
crazy conservative ranting. Yeah, and uh, you, I want to get into this a little bit more because you, you, you're talking to this, this reporter's name is uh, Emma Fitzsimmons, and you talk to her for a while, and you make it clear at no time during the conversation did she imply or even remotely hint that she would cast my original New York Post story as incorrectly reported or allow me to comment on an accusation. Then the Times story comes out, and they say debit cards seemed like a common-sense solution until Republican leaders and conservative voices came along and ridiculed it, making people upset. Chief among the people causing this distress was you, of course, for incorrectly suggesting that migrants would receive up to $10,000 each in taxpayer money in an open-ended multi-million dollar, billion dollar Bermuda Triangle of disappearing untraceable cash for any used purpose. You know, it's a shame because I always remember journalism in kind of being the watchdog for government agencies, not the spokesperson. Right. And I don't blame the reporter. I think this is a systemic problem where the, the this goes up to the editors oh, and the Absolutely. larger that the paper wants to spin this narrative that everything is great. It's just that we're complaining about making a big deal about nothing. And that's true on a lot of New York City topics. You know, for example, subway crime. We've had 34 subway homicides since March of 2020. That's almost a decade and a half's worth of subway homicides in just four years. And that's because of bail reform. It's because of COVID dislocations. You know, that's like a whole other conversation. But to the Times, it's fine. Every time someone's killed on subway, they write that it's very rare, that you shouldn't worry about it because it's very rare. I mean, it almost, if it wasn't people getting killed, you would say it's kind of humorous because they have to write that it's very rare all the time. Same thing with the shoplifting crisis. You know, they tried not to write about shoplifting crisis until they just couldn't avoid it anymore. I mean, the stores were closing everywhere. So this is another thing. You know, everything's great with the migrants. We can just house the entire world in New York City in unlimited benefit system. And there's no problems. The only problems is us sort of just saying crazy things. And then you point out, I want to close this way, because you, you said, you know, as standard journalistic practice, you wrote about this, you know, the original story was in the New York Post. You wrote about it on City Journal and said, uh, before writing this piece, I asked both Fitzsimmons, the New York Times reporter, and her editor for on-the-record comments on its substantive points, including how to square Fitzsimmons's assertion to me that my piece raised important questions with her reporting to Times readers that my piece was simply incorrect in its most substantive, substantive suggestion. So your question is, how can both of these things be true? And you say you got a response saying our story is fair and accurate when Ms. Yolinas sent a correction request. Editors at the Times thoroughly reviewed the matter and found no correctable errors. That's kind of the pattern for the New York Times, so that doesn't really surprise me and probably doesn't right. you know, surprise you. Circling, circling the wagons until you just can't do it anymore. I mean, you can go back to reporting on Stalin. You know, this is this is a... This is a a long-held pattern there. But it's just, you know, you're right that the reporter says, well, your story was what forced the city to respond and what forced the city to talk publicly about this. But the only thing that the paper said about my story was that it was incorrect. So if you're a good New Yorker, you only subscribe to the Times, you're not reading other news sources, the only thing you would learn about this is that this is just completely out there. You don't have to worry that the city is launching an open-ended debit card program with no exit strategy Uh. and creating a parallel benefit system that we have no idea how much this is going to cost and what other public services 
they were going to cut back. Even if you agree with the program, you should want to know Absolutely. what the details are. That, that's, that's such a great point. And this, you know, th- this is a perfect fit for this show because we talk about things like this all the time. And it's just, and you know, your ask at the end of your, your piece in the, in the City Journal is, Read both pieces, right? Yeah. Read your original piece. Read the New York Times piece. Read the follow-up in City Journal. And then see what you think about all this, because I think that's important. But stay on them, Nicole. I appreciate coming on here in St. Louis and talking about it, okay? Likewise. Thank you. All right. Take care. Get more at 971talk.com. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.